Aging is a natural process, and with it come changes in memory. Most people associate aging with declines in cognitive performance. My mom will say she's having a senior moment when she forgets something, for example. But never fear, not all cognitive changes in adulthood are negative. Some abilities remain relatively stable, and some even improve. So let's start with the positive. Abilities that remain stable. First of all, implicit memory stays about the same across the lifespan. In other words, once you've learned to ride a bike, that procedural memory is likely to stay with you as you age, barring any brain damage or disease. Recognition memory also stays relatively stable over time, meaning that once you learn something, your ability to pick it out of a list later remains about the same whether you're 27 or 67. Now for abilities that improve. Semantic memory improves until around age 60 and only then starts declining. This means that older adults still have good verbal skills and why they make excellent crossword puzzle buddies. A related area in which older adults tend to score better than younger adults is crystallized intelligence, which involves the ability to use knowledge and experience. Since older adults have had more time to gain knowledge and experience, this pattern makes sense. And crystallized intelligence is often tested with reading comprehension and analogy tests, so older adults tend to be better at those than younger adults. Finally, older adults tend to be better at reasoning in the face of interpersonal or emotionally charged problems. Again, the theory is that with their greater experience and knowledge of these types of situations, they're more likely to have been through some similar situation and be able to draw from that experience. Of course, there are some cognitive abilities that decline as we age. Recall becomes more difficult. Although recognition is stable, it's harder for older adults than younger adults to generate responses without cues, like there are in a free recall or sometimes cued recall test. Similarly, episodic memory is impaired. Often, memories formed a long time ago will be relatively stable, but forming new episodic memories becomes more difficult as we age. Processing speed slows down as we age, so if you're watching Jeopardy with Grandma, she might know just as many answers as you do, if not more, but she'll have a harder time outputting the response within such a short period of time. Related to processing speed, divided attention becomes more difficult. As we age, it becomes increasingly harder to effectively switch our attention between tasks, so we become more easily distracted. The bottom line is that cognitive changes in adulthood aren't all negative. Although some cognitive abilities do decline, it's important to remember that in healthy older adults, some cognitive abilities will remain stable or even improve. Good afternoon. I'm here to talk about aging, and more specifically, aging of the brain. But not the sort of aging of, you know, when you go old and you go, oh my God, I'm getting old, I don't want to rock and roll anymore. No, no. I want to talk about brain death. You see, I have a friend who claims that she'll be able to live healthily until she is 150 years old. Now, this friend happens to be a medical doctor, so she has a good understanding of human physiology and she's well informed about the progress of biomedicine. So 
one would expect her to have good arguments for her optimism. But every time I discuss with her about this, I have to remind her of an ugly fact that goes against her hopes. And that is that our brains age very badly. You see, by the time we are 80 years old, 50% of us, 50% of everybody in this room, will be suffering from some sort of mental disease that will either cripple you, erase our memories, or kill you. So unless we manage to extend the longevity of our brain, it's very difficult to imagine that we can actually live up to 150. And unlike what's going on in other fields of medicine, such as oncology or cardiovascular medicine, we actually have very little hope today of predicting, preventing, or much less curing brain diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, or senile dementia. In fact, neurodegeneration remains a sort of biomedical mystery. We are not very clear about the genetics of these diseases. We don't really know what's the impact of external factors. Uh, and in fact, we don't even understand why neurons tend to get sicker and deteriorate so much, so much more than normal tissues in our body, other tissues in our body. So I'm here to tell you a story that I hope will illuminate some of these questions and perhaps in due time, offer ways to actually prevent these diseases. And this is not a small claim, but the story is beautiful, so it deserves to be told anyway. It's the story of the convergence of two independent research paths. And this is how science works. Very often scientists working on apparently different topics will converge to offer answers to long-standing and important questions in an unexpected manner. These two research paths that I'm going to tell you about started 70 years ago, and they only converged very recently. The path on the left is the path that describes the progress of science in understanding a very peculiar uh, neurodegeneration. It's called lithicobodic. Lithicobodic is an endemic disease to a small island in the Pacific Ocean, in the island of Guam. It was first reported by American doctors of the U.S. Army when they reached the island after the Second World War. And they were extremely interested in that disease because it had very peculiar characteristics. I don't see anybody. <laughs> this disease looks like Parkinson's. It's like a combination of Parkinson's and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. But it has two important differences. The first one is that it affects people very early in their lives, in their 30s or their 40s. And the second important difference is that the incidence of the disease in the island of Guam was 100 times, 100 times higher than that of Parkinson's in Western populations. So doctors were really interested in this disease and research was strong. This research took an unexpected turn in the 60s and the 70s after the work of Marjorie Whiting, who was an anthropologist working on the disease. She proposed that the disease was caused by a toxin, a toxin that was present in the food that the local people in Guam were ingesting from a local plant. That was 
revolutionary, but that toxin was actually found, and it was found to be an amino acid. It's called beta-methylaminoalanine. And research later showed that beta-methylaminoalanine, or BMAA, will actually cause neurodegeneration in animal models such as mice, rats, uh, or monkeys. Now, then it was discovered that beta-methylaminoalanine is not only made by plants, it's actually mostly made by bacteria, bacteria that like to live in coastal shallow waters, very much like the waters that you have here around El Delta de Lebra, near Amposta. Bacteria in these waters produce a lot of BMAA, and when their numbers grow, the waters become contaminated with this amino acid, and the animals will feed on it. And several reports in the 90s have shown that there is a correlation between certain types of neurodegeneration and the physical proximity of the patients to the waters where BMAA is concentrated. So, I think it's clear that BMAA will cause neurodegeneration, but the question was, why? And that was only answered very recently when an Australian laboratory reported that BMAA is, after ingestion, is incorporated into the human body and inserted as a mistake into our proteins. It is what I call a wrong brick. But for you to understand what a wrong brick is, we need to go into the right side of the road, into the right path. It's the path that describes the discovery of the genetic code. Most likely, the most important discovery in science ever made. That path starts also in the 1950s with the work of Franklin, Wilkins, Watson, and Crick when they discovered the structure of DNA. That's a fundamental discovery, a phenomenal discovery, because it allowed biologists to understand how did the genetic code work. And the genetic code is nothing else than an alphabet, but it's the alphabet that every single living organism on Earth, every single one, uses to build its genes and its genome. And what is the genome of any species? The genome is nothing else than the book of instructions that the cells of this organism will use to build the proteins that it needs to grow. Then it took us over 25 years to understand how that system worked. Each cell in our body contains a protein synthesis machine, a very sophisticated machine that will read the instructions in the genome and using 20 amino acids as bricks will build proteins, like if you were building a wall. That's how it works, but it has a big problem. The 20 amino acids that we use as bricks to make proteins are mixed together with a whole bunch of other amino acids that are extremely toxic. If they get into proteins, they are toxic. So the system, somehow, has to manage to pick up the right bricks and exclude the wrong ones. It took us another 20 years to understand how that happens, and this happens thanks to the editing activity, which is something that each cell in the world, again, has to prevent these wrong bricks to get into proteins. Now, nothing here is perfect, and the editing machinery, the editing activity is not perfect either. 
It's prepared so that each of our cells rejects the amino acids that we are more in contact with, the more abundant ones around us. But things that we don't see very often might escape the system and get into our proteins. And now you probably see where I'm going with BMAA. BMAA, that amino acid that causes lithicobodic in Guam, is an amino acid that we don't see very often, unless you happen to be in Guam eating like the people in Guam. So the editing system in humans hasn't learned to discriminate against it. It escapes the system, it gets into our proteins, and it forces them to collapse. And when that happens, you get neurodegeneration. Okay. So now you think, oh, all right, cool. All I have to do is not go to Guam, not eat like the people in Guam, I'll be fine. Now, unfortunately, it's not that easy. You see, BMA is only an example, but there are many other examples that we've known for a long time. What you're seeing now is an etching that was made by Francisco de Goya at the end of the 18th century. And it illustrates the effect of a diet that was used at the time, and it's still used today, in times of famine. The people in the etching are eating what it's called in Spanish, almortas. It's a paste made out of the grit of the seeds of a plant called grass pea. The problem with these seeds is that they contain a high concentration of a very toxic amino acid that will kill your terminal nerves and paralyze your legs in, indefinitely. And this is why the woman at the forefront of the image is lying on the floor. You see, and the problem is that apparently the more we look into this, the more we find toxic amino acids with, like this in our diet, everywhere. So it's not like you can simply reject some types of uh, food to prevent these amino acids from entering your system. They are everywhere. This is already an incredible realization, but that's likely how things work. Our genetic system is not prepared to filter very small amounts of amino acids, and if they accumulate along our lives, by the time we reach a certain age, they might cause neurodegeneration in the brain. And I'm going to go a step further and propose something even more amazing. This bottle, which is red because my students thought that it would match the carpet, represents the volume of bacteria that we have in our guts. It's about two, vol two liters of, in volume, two kilos in weight. The amount of bacteria in our guts, what's called the microbial flora, is so large that if you consider this an organ in your body, it would be one of the largest organs that we have. It's essential to us. We cannot live with this, without this bacteria. But we know very little about what they produce. And so it's possible, and I think it's very probable, that apart from the toxic amino acids that we can ingest through the food, there is also toxic amino acids that, through our lives, we incorporate because it's, they're produced by these bacteria. So that's incredible. No? I mean, that's the way it is no matter how healthy you are, you will not be able to prevent incorporating these wrong amino acids into your system. If you don't live healthily, you'll die earlier, of course, but even if you do as much as you can, your editing system has limitations. Now, if this is true, then the million, not the million, the, the billion dollar question is what can we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it if this is true? And the answer is absolutely yes. 
If this is true, there are very simple things that we might be able to do to reduce the problem a little bit. If we manage to identify which amino acids are constantly being misincorporated into our proteins, we might actually simply supplement our diet so that we incorporate into it more of the right amino acids to compete out the wrong ones. Without doing anything dramatic, we might actually be able to reduce the amount of wrong amino acids that end up in our brain. Or, and, as a smart student in my lab actually pointed out, we could actually teach our bacteria, modulate our intestinal flora so that it uh, produces less of these toxic amino acids and it reduces the amount of toxicity that ends up in our neurons. Now, I want to only ask you two things. The first thing is, please, after hearing this talk, don't run to the pharmacy to buy amino acid complements. You'll be wasting your money, and if anything, you'll probably do more harm than good. Science needs to do its job, figure this out, and if the hypothesis is correct, we can then figure out what, how do we need to manipulate our diet to improve the longevity in our brains. And the second thing I want to ask, it's very simple. By the time you reach your 150th birthday, please go out, celebrate, find the closest scientist to you, and thank him or her for the work they are doing. Thank you. The main change that's occurring in, in the brain with aging, and we see it in humans, we see it in rats, uh, is that there's a development of what you might call inflammation. It's a lot like what happens when you're injured, but in this case it happens in the brain. Um, up, up until a few years ago, we weren't even aware that inflammation developed in the brain. Now we see that it's in the background of a lot of diseases. What I've discovered is that marijuana, uh, or at least the, a particular component of it, what we call a cannabinoid, um, is the component of the plant that when in the brain, at very low levels, uh, is able to reduce this brain inflammation. I'm incredibly excited about it because this is the first time we've ever had a compound that actually works in the old brain. Everything works in a young brain, but this is working in old brain. So this means that if you're 60, 70, and you're having some problems with mental decline, um, we might have a mechanism that could target that. You can use very, very low doses. We're talking about the equivalent of one puff of a marijuana cigarette per day, just one. Now, this isn't something that's likely to produce the euphoria of the high. Um, and we think we might be able to, able to go lower doses. So this is just the beginning of what we think we'll un, sort of uncover as we continue to investigate this line of research. So our thinking is that you might actually uh, take this medication via a patch. So you wouldn't actually have to inhale any, you know, cancerous smoke. Uh, you wouldn't have to, you know, prepare the cigarettes. We could get around all of those behaviors that some people find unpleasant, especially in the elderly. I would like to be able to find what we call a magic bullet that would be able to reduce the inflammation and its consequences on your mental function without having to raise the specter of it being a drug of abuse. Having the 
four to five cups a day minimum for about two years, so a period of time where you're bathing your brain regularly in this, this chemical and whatever else is in the coffee, uh, is neuroprotective. It prevents the death of neurons whose death leads to Parkinson's disease. Simply take in fewer calories. Um, we're not even sure it matters which calories you take out. Just, you know, you've heard about various diets, don't eat carbs or proteins or sugars. Um, as far as we can tell, just don't eat so many calories. Try and get a balanced diet. You know, mom's advice was right on. Eat a little bit of everything every day and, you know, don't focus on one thing. Just don't eat so much. That has been the most effective anti-aging therapy that anyone's ever, you know, described in animals or humans. So here's a story from Forbes that uh, probably will make a significant percentage of my audience very happy. Marijuana may be a weapon against brain aging, study suggests. Wow. Um, brain aging. That's not, I, I never really thought of that, to be honest. But, yeah, I guess that is a thing. Like, the rest of your body ages. It's not like your brain is immune. Like, your brain ages, too, like the rest of your body ages. Wow. So they say smoking marijuana might prevent your brain from aging. So if you want to have a brain that's still functioning like a 35-year-old, even though you're 75, maybe you got to smoke some weed. So this is what they say. The study was published in the journal Nature Medicine. Quote, a study shows that the psychoactive chemical in marijuana, THC, let's try to pronounce it just so we can laugh, tetrahydrocannabinol, not bad, uh, restores cognitive function in the brains of mice Rolling back the aging process. Hmm. So I don't know how how far their research goes and if it suggests, well, this is definitely the case in humans as well. Or if they say, no, it just might be the case in humans. I don't know. I don't know. But that is a good sign. And listen, this is, you know, I'm one of very few voices that says... it. it Drugs are not not only not all bad and not only neutral and that they're neither good nor bad. Some drug use has to be in moderation, has to be the right kind of drugs. Every disclaimer you can imagine, yada, yada, yada. Might be a good thing. It might just be good. It might be positive. How many people have spoken about transformative experiences where their life changed after they did a... Uh, uh, Psychedelic drug, for example. Now, look, that's not my cup of tea. So it's not for everybody. Some people, for whatever reason, their personality type, their mind type, just not for them. Okay? I'm like that. I'm not psychoactive substances, hallucinogens, psychedelics, whatever you want to call them. Can't. That's not me. But some people do it, and they say, listen, man, I broke an addiction after I did it. You know, I did it. I didn't have cigarettes anymore after that. I did it. I didn't drink alcohol, and I was an alcoholic, or whatever the case is. You know? Uh, and it's not the same for everybody. Some people drink alcohol and they become alcoholics and it ruins them. Other people drink alcohol and they do it once a week or, or once a month and they have a good time and they laugh with their friends and it enhances their life. You know, same thing with different drugs. Some people smoke weed. It makes them more empathetic. It makes them um, more in touch with their internal dialogue and they can be more creative. And this is the thing, man. There's been countless geniuses throughout time whether it's brilliant artists or scientists 
or what have you who like substances and who use substances to their benefit. Now, again, addiction is a terrible thing and no, you know, everything in moderation is, is really the, the rule of thumb that I think makes sense here. But to pretend like they're all bad or to pretend like they're all not bad, but they're neutral or whatever. No, some are literally good sometimes. Okay. And here you have more evidence that's coming out on a daily basis that, hey, maybe the more we look into this, the more we study this, the more we find our just say no attitude, our it's all bad attitude. It's really born of ignorance is what it is. And societal norms that are just kind of tied up in an old school Protestant work ethic and extremely puritanical worldview. And it's just that's not true. So we should care about facts and reality and try to base our worldview uh, on the data. So this is interesting. As a guy, again, marijuana is not my drug. I don't like it very much. But, you know, hey, if it really does keep your brain young, then at a certain age, pass the blunt. Hi there, working like a woman. I just wanted to say, first, thank you so much for favoriting my station. Second, I am doing a segment tomorrow on conquering cravings. And I wanted to know if you have any cravings that you maybe deal with um, on, you know, it doesn't have to be a daily basis, but every once in a while when you know you're really craving something, if you've ever noticed that come up and what that craving was. If you want to give me a call in or a shout out, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just trying to get as many people to help answer that question as possible. So maybe I can help some people figure out why they are having those cravings and what to do to combat them. So thanks again for favoriting my station and I really love your station as well, whether I'm listening on Megs or on my Life Stride station. I really do appreciate all of your feedback. Hey Life Stride Fitness, thanks for that call in. And boy, cravings. Now I eat a fairly restricted diet. I don't eat sugar. I eat very little carbs and I eat almost entirely vegetables, fruit, um, proteins, and you know, a tiny little bit of carbs. And once in a great while I have some sugar, but that's about it. And that's pretty easy for me because I don't, I've never really liked sugar. I don't really crave sugar. So that was a pretty easy one for me. I know that's a lot of people that's their craving. So I think just in general, I guess craving maybe too many calories than I need. Um, we have like a, a bowl of nuts, a bowl of almonds sitting on the counter. And that's probably what I eat too much of. I shouldn't eat because I notice when we run out of them and I haven't bought more that I'll go down a couple pounds. But if they're sitting around, they're high, they're, they're good for you, but they're high in calories. And that's when I tend to, to keep that couple extra pounds on. So I guess that's my craving. I don't know. That's a tough question for me. But thanks for the call in. And I'm really interested to hear what a lot of people say their craving is. I'm betting a whole lot of it is sugar or junk food or fried foods or, or that type of thing. So very curious and I'll be listening tomorrow. Thanks for that. 
Good afternoon, working like a woman. It's your girl Till Talk with Fisha. I just wanted to hop on real quick and tell you thank you for supporting the Till Talk station. We will do the same. I am looking forward to listening to your station. Working like a woman. I'm a woman. I like to work. Hey, maybe we can do some future collaborations. You have an awesome day. And remember, real chatter matters. Good afternoon, working like a woman. It's your girl Till Talk with Fisha. I just wanted to hop on real quick and tell you thank you for supporting the Till Talk station. We will do the same. I am looking forward to listening to your station. Working like a woman. I'm a woman. I like to work. Hey, maybe we can do some future collaborations. You have an awesome day. And remember, real chatter matters. Hey, Till Talk. Thanks for that call in. And you're right, real chatter does matter. And real meaning good content and facts. Facts that can be backed up with science. Thanks for that call in and I'm looking forward to hearing your station. Ronnie, thank you so much for your response to my call in. Absolutely, work ethic is so key. Just we're giving the kids the wrong impression for sure. Even making a YouTube video, it's not just about me putting makeup on and sitting there in front of a camera. There's a lot of work that goes into my YouTube videos. And for personal training, people don't understand why I need to charge certain rates because of, I have to pay for certification, CPR licensing, driving around, equipment, all sorts of stuff. I need my kids to understand that there's a lot of work that goes into things. Um, even actors and uh, like you were saying yeah professional sports um, and also the longevity of jobs sometimes those professional athletes they aren't going to be working till they're 60 they need to retire they can't stay in the field for a long time so they need to make a lot of money sometimes but uh, it's a lot of work it's a lot of work hey Maria thanks for that call in and yeah work ethic is key like, you know, like the plumber or the electrician that comes out to your house. Well, you have to consider drive time. You have to consider their licensing. You have to consider the insurance that they buy. You have to consider the fact that they can't work a solid eight-hour day because they spend a lot of time on the road and a lot of time returning phone calls and whatnot. A lot of time doing accounting. And if you don't want to pay the high rate, you know, of a plumber, well, do it yourself. You know, take the time and, and put the work in yourself and learn how to do it. If you don't want to pay to watch a professional athlete play sports, and again, I'm not supporting professional athletes because you know, team sports is a whole different thing for me. But get a group of friends together and go out in the field and, and play a game, you know. Nazi and I have both been personal trainers in the past, so you know I know exactly what you mean. I know all the licensing that goes into it. I know all the prep work that goes into it. I know all the follow-up that you have to do. It's, it's a lot of work. And we've both been professional performers in the past and, you know, charged so much to go out and perform at an event. And in fact, we still go out and perform at events and that, you know, that 15 minute show or that half hour show or that hour show or, you know, however long the show is that you put on for these people, it takes 
weeks, months to get the act together, have it perfected, get your music together, you know, get all your props together, get your costume together. It takes a lot of work. And yeah, if if you want, it isn't just like, oh, well, we're going to pay you $15 an hour. Well, no, that's not how it works. And if you don't want to pay for all that prep time, well, then do it yourself or rent a movie or something. But yeah, people have to understand work ethic and what really goes into something to make it professional. Now, our kids, when we perform, our kids have been part of the act lately, so they are well aware of all the practice time and um, prep that goes into a performance. That's been a lot of fun, and I, I think it's really helped open their eyes. Thanks for that call in, and we'll talk soon. Hello, Walking Like a Woman. Um, how you doing? Um, yeah, it's um, morning here um, in London, and um, yeah, I'm just um, hoping you're right. I haven't seen you around my station for some time. Um, yeah, so I've just um, caught the call, checking up on you. I've been listening to your content, and um, they're quite um, enlightening. The the stuff that you bump into, if you the you know the the grounded, inquisitive mind, and you're able to like um, decipher and see good information on the internet, and um, um, yeah. Just absorb it and learn. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And uh, I go through your content every now and again. It'd be nice to see you around. Hey, Lou. Thanks for the call in. I'm really glad you're enjoying the content that I've been putting out there. I'm trying to make it relevant to what I posted the day before. So if you listen to the episode the day before, it's a continuation. It ties together to what I posted the day before. Yeah, I'll definitely come back and check out your station again. There's so many great stations on Anchor, and it's uh, I feel for everyone out there. It's so hard to get around and find the time to listen to everyone's station. I wish there was some way that we could, um, you know, expedite that. I I I, I don't know what the solution is because there's just so much great content out there, but. Um, Thanks for listening, and I'll swing on over and and see what you're posting. So I've been posting a lot about different functions of the brain, different cognitive functions of the brain, different cognitive biases that we experience. And today I've posted about um, you know brain health and the aging of the brain. Now, all of you out there are in completely different stages of your life, but it's important to understand how your brain changes as you age and, you know, what you can do about it, what what the good is, what the bad is, what to expect, and how to act accordingly. And it's great for people who are younger to understand the aging of the brain. So when they're dealing with someone 
in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever age it is, you can understand what is happening. Because I see a lot of young people getting very frustrated with older people. And there's no need to. If you understand physically what is happening, you can, you can compensate for that. You can cope with that. And you can take advantage of all, all the wonderful things that that older person has to offer.